You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to the Global Philosophy of Religion Project at the University of Birmingham, led by Professor Yujin Nagasawa. We at Closer to Truth are pleased to participate. Today, we explore the philosophy of Judaism and related issues in metaphysics. Samuel Liebens is an academic philosopher and an ordained Orthodox rabbi, having studied at various Israeli rabbinical schools. He is assistant professor in the philosophy department at the University of Haifa, with interest in philosophy of religion, metaphysics, epistemology, and philosophy of language. He's also the co-founder of the Association for the Philosophy of Judaism. Sam, welcome. Shalom Lacha. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's explore the existence and nature of God from two philosophical perspectives. First, in Judaism in its own context, and second, when relevant, compared with other world religions. Uh, our Global Philosophy of Religion project seeks to interrelate traditions by eliciting responses to similar theological and philosophical questions. Then we're gonna discuss some of your very interesting metaphysical puzzles. So let's start with the existence of God. Uh, in Judaic history, what are some of the arguments for and against if there, if there are uh, the existence of God? Well, um, in a sense, Judaism um, doesn't trade uh, as readily as some other religions do, perhaps, in, in arguments for the existence of God. Um, the great medieval Jewish philosophers um, would um, rely very much on the Islamic tradition uh, that, that was influenced in turn by the Greek philosophical tradition. And the cosmological argument was perhaps the most popular um, argument for the existence of God. Something along the lines of there needs to be uh, a necessary being to explain the, um, the existence of all of this contingent stuff around us. Um, the Bible doesn't contain any obvious argument for the existence of God, and the Jewish people took themselves generally to have a personal relationship with God through history. And, and I think um, that obviated for them to a certain degree um, the, the pursuit or the pastime of proffering arguments. In your paper, Revelation Through Concealment, Kabbalistic Responses to God's Hiddenness, you take on John Schellenberg's argument for atheism, according to which theism would be easy to believe if true, but since theism isn't easy to believe, it must be false. Uh, John, by the way, is a Closer to Truth contributor and a good friend, so I want to see how you argue that the Kabbalistic Judaism has the resources to what you say bypass this argument completely. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that was a, a brave statement of mine, wasn't it? <laughs> I, um, I would say the following, look, um, I, think, I think John is right to say um, that some of the obvious responses to his argument, however obvious they may feel, they actually fall down upon further inspection. So one of them, he says, well, if God made his presence too obvious, uh, then we wouldn't have any freedom. We'd feel somehow compelled to follow his will. John's unimpressed by that because we all know people who believe very firmly that God exists, who yet fall short, who, who, who sin, who do things that even they regret. So merely believing firmly that God exists doesn't seem to kind of curtail our freedom to do bad. So that's, it's kind of a facile answer. Um, and I worry that my answer is going to sound too similar to that, but it's not, it's supposed to be importantly different. My answer is that um, God's perfection, if indeed a perfect being exists, um, the perfection of that being would in some important sense leave no room for anything else to exist. And the the puzzle is, if that's true, um, how come other stuff does exist? <laughs> it, we, it's, not, it's not only God that exists, other things exist too, exist too. And if God's perfection 
leaves no room for anything else to exist, um, you know, either that theism must obviously be false because other things do exist, or we need some sort of solution to the puzzle. And the solution that the Kabbalists offered was that in one sense or another, God somehow reigned in his perfection, whether through an illusion, uh, almost like a disguise, uh, or, or, or whether he really did it, somehow temporarily rendered himself imperfect to become perfect again later, whatever the mechanism might be. Um, if that's true, we should expect um, that if God exists, his, his existence would somehow be hidden or, sh or shielded or con constrained or obscured from view um, um, in the world that exists beyond him. I, now, I, all, yeah. I can follow that argument, but it's based on your initial assumption that a perfect being uh, and we'll get into perfect being theology later, but a perfect being couldn't allow anything else to coexist with it. Why is that the case? That to me is not intuitively obvious. Good, you're right. That's the big fat assumption at the kind of bottom of what I was just saying. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't hoping you wouldn't notice, I'm, but I'm glad you picked it up. Um, Tyron Goldschmidt and I have uh, an often time collaborator of mine. We wrote a paper called divine contractions, um, theism gives birth to idealism. And in that paper, we offer three arguments for why God's perfection wouldn't leave uh, room for anything beyond God. Let me just give you one of them in a nutshell, but there are others too. I, I, I refer people to that paper. Uh, one of the arguments in a nutshell is this. If God is perfect, we imagine that he's omnipotent. One of the things we take omnipotence to entail is the possession of an efficacious will. And what that means is, as soon as God wills something, then that something happens without any intervening steps. So when my wife wills for the fridge to be full at home, she has, she has to go to the trouble of writing out a shopping list and I go and do the shopping. But if God wishes for the fridge to be filled, it will just be filled upon his wishing. That's the efficacious will. And... Um, we then have an assumption. I think it's a really plausible assumption. The assumption goes as follows. For any object X, if the properties of X are wholly dependent upon the will of some mind Y, then X is nothing more than an idea in the mind of Y. Mm -hmm. Nothing, no, the will of a mind to exercise that sort of control over an object, minds can't do that unless the object belongs to the mind somehow. Right? Okay, so well, the... I, I can follow that and in, in, in more closely in relating to idealism, I think in relating to other things not having a total existence is, is, is another half step. Yeah, uh, so, that, so that, that, that extra half step is something like, well, look, God has the power over every object that minds typically have over their ideas. Therefore, it turns out every object is merely an idea in the mind of God. This goes further than Barclay's idealism. Barclay thought that, that material objects were ideas in the mind of God, but you, Robert, and me, our minds are independent to God. No, 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 no. I'm going to say even your mind and my mind, just ideas in the mind of God. And what this means is that God can't create a world outside of his mind. If so he's God, omnipotent. So God, God, if God is omnipotent, he cannot? He cannot create a world yeah, that's outside that's, of his mind. Because everything like, would be rendered just an idea in his mind. That's like, can God lift or is God able to create a rock that he can't lift? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Omnipotence bizarrely actually puts some limits on the being. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's move on to the main critique of the existence of God, which is the problem of evil. And considering Jewish history, which we all know from pogroms to the Holocaust, how to deal with the problem of evil, specifically in relationship to the existence of such a God, and and if such a God exists, the attributes of that God. Yeah, I think um, the argument from evil is the is the best argument against God's existence, and and I think it gives. Um, 
it gives the, the, the greatest amount of counter evidence to theism of any, of any argument or, or topic. Um, Judaism has some resources. Uh, I won't talk about my own crazy views because I know you want to come back to that later, Robert. Um, some of the resources um, I think can look quite offensive if you give them too much work to do. So the Hebrew Bible, for example, seems to be quite keen on what you might call a punitive theodicy. So the reason bad things happen is because we somehow deserve them to happen. They're punishments uh, for all sorts of things. Now I'm actually open to the fact that many of the bad things that happen in my life because I deserve them, right? Um, and that might well be part of a theodicy, but there are some evils uh, that so outstrip any plausible injustice rendered by the people who suffer them. Right. It's just implausible uh, to say that the punitive theodicy can explain all evil, but it can do some. Um, some Jewish thinkers have believed in reincarnation, which brings a whole new di dimension to hmm. the, the problem of evil, because it turns out we may be, so to speak, paying for the sins of previous lives, uh, much like uh, one finds in certain Eastern religions. Um, that raises new problems too. Now, how is it fair for me to be punished for things I don't remember doing? Mm -hmm. Although, you know, there are certain interesting responses to that question. One is that maybe in the future, somehow at the end of the cycle of lives, all my memories of past lives will be restored to me and suddenly I'll understand why all these things happened. Um, uh, an apologist philosopher cleric in, in Jerusalem called uh, uh, Rabbi David Gottlieb um, made a really nice point, which is that, you know, maybe in our past lives, some of the things we did were really horrible to maybe young people or to animals, to, to victims who didn't have the capacity to understand why it was they were suffering at our hands. Mm. And then maybe it's actually quite just for us to suffer the sins we can't remember doing because it's kind of um, uh, um, fitting to, to crimes we had in the past life. I don't know. Um, there are soul, um, soul-making theodicies which say that evil plays a role in shaping us. All, all of these um, theodicies, including the free will defense, uh, you know, can be found in Jewish thought. In one of your papers, you talked about specific Kabbalistic advice to people of faith uh, for those times in which God certainly appears to be hidden uh, in Jewish history. Uh, what specifically is that advice? That's right. There's, there's a kind of Hasidic um, sensibility, which, which I find really moving, uh, according to which even when God hides himself, there's a sense in which he reveals himself in the ways in which he hides. Think about clothing. When we wear clothing, it obscures parts of our body. But by wearing clothing, first of all, we allow ourselves to go out in public. Um, given this whole Kabbalistic doctrine, doctrine I'm speaking about, God somehow couldn't create a world beyond his own mind, or at least a world that seemed to be beyond his own mind without kind of hiding. It's like you and I can't go out into the world without putting on clothes. They, they conceal, they also reveal um, the ways in which we play hard to get with those that we love sometimes. Somehow we can relate even to God's hiddenness sometimes as a, as a mode of interaction. I find that quite moving. In uh, Judaism in general, how do we know God? You mentioned that arguments are not uh, not generally part of the process. Right. So I, I think there's a, a few types of knowledge we have of God. First of all, as you find in, in, in many religious traditions, um, there's personal religious experience that people have. And um, that personal religious experience tends to be colored by the culture in which a person grew up. So people in the Jewish community, when they have religious experiences, it tends to be colored by the kind of symbolic landscape of Judaism, the narratives of Judaism. Um, but what's kind of distinctive about Judaism, by no means unique, but at, at least distinctive, is the sense in which our knowledge of God is thought to be corporate. So, so as a nation, uh, through time, we've been touched by divinity. In fact, you know, um, it is surprising by all accounts. We're a tiny, tiny people. Um, um, statistically, uh, our numbers as a people are smaller than the margin of error on a Chinese census. Mm -hmm. um, that's how small uh, the Jewish people are. 
you know, if you look at the, the role that we've played in global history, the, the, the influence we've had with the arts, the sciences, philosophy, thought in general, culture, um, it's been way above and beyond what one might expect from our numbers. Um, and I don't believe, because I'm not some sort of supremacist, God forbid, or racist, I don't believe that's because of some kind of special genetic endowments. Indeed, the Jewish people are not a race. People can join the Jewish people. We're actually a multiracial people. It's hard to, to recognize that sometimes if you live in Brooklyn or, or uh, you know, in, in a center of Ashkenazi Judaism. But the Jewish people has African Jews, Chinese Jews, Indian Jews, Jews of Arabic origin and, and European Jews. Um, it, it's not some sort of, uh, God forbid, uh, racial or genetic um, inheritance. The Jewish people look at it as some special role that providence has handed us. And, and we have known God as a people. Our history hasn't always been pleasant. In fact, it's been um, extremely dark at times, but it has been unusually, let's say, unusually prominent for such a small people. Mm. And th this is a sense of, of our collectively knowing God as a people through history. Oh, that's a very important distinction in terms of knowing God. Normally, other religions talk about only in the personal sense, and this mm -hmm. is different. Uh, are there um, uh, elements of religious and mis mystical experiences within the different sectors of Judaism, Orthodox, Hasidic, Kabbalah tradition, and conservative reform are much less. But it, it, do you have that? I know you had a paper on religious experience uh, uh, as you experience theism. Yeah, um, you know, J Judaism is, a, I hate to use this idiom, but it's a very broad church. And even Orthodoxy uh, right. is a very broad church, right? So, and you you, you named a few, you name checked a few even within Orthodoxy movements. You have like the Hasidic movement, and you have non-Hasidic forms of Kabbalism. You know, kind of um, Mizrahi Eastern forms of of, of Kabbalism, um, and you have rationalism. Uh, but even the rationalists, it strikes me, rationalists like um, par excellence Maimonides had room for religious experience. It just wasn't kind of couched in this very thick language of, 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 of mysticism and the structure of the emanations of the Godhead that you might find in, in Kabbalah. But yeah, I think that, that um, in, in, every, in every form of Orthodox Judaism, there is some, um, some emphasis on religious experience. It just takes a different flavor. <laughs> depending depending upon the, the community. It seems less of a dependence within Judaism on the visions of mystics, which yeah. other religions have, certainly Eastern religions have, Christians right. to some degree, uh, but um, the rabbis historically have more of a kind of a, 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 a communal interaction and yeah an interpretive of the, of the Torah and the Mishnah and the Mora and the various writings relationship and their brilliance in doing that. But they don't, again, from my fairly naive Jewish point of view, they don't have that direct claim of mystical relationship with God that they then transmit to others. Is that, is that right? Well, well, I can understand why you'd say it. I don't think it's quite right, but I also don't think it's quite wrong. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, well, I, that's pretty good for me. That's okay. <laughs> We're getting closer to truth. Yeah. Know, so, right. um, so I, I, I'd say as follows. Uh, where, where I think you weren't quite right is that, that the, the Jewish history has heroes of mysticism, and those heroes of mysticism had quite, you know, vivid religious experiences and visions. I mean, you don't need to go as far back as Ezekiel the prophet, right, to, to talk about quite psychedelic yeah. visions. But, you know, even um, um, Rav Yosef Cairo, the, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, who's most well known, the Shulchan Aruch was a, was a very influential codex of Jewish law, uh, which governs uh, every minute of, of Jewish life from what shoe to put on first in the morning to, you know, what you say as soon as you put, you know, just before you fall asleep at night. That writer, that author, Rabbi Cairo, 
had the most vivid images of angels coming to speak to him. He kept a diary of these, of these revelations, these personal revelations that he had. You know, the Heichalot literature speaks about the, the mystical uh, ascensions that people would have after weeks of fasting and, and, and praying, and they would ascend to these, these different um, um, palaces uh, in heaven. Um, but the reason I think you're right, like where I think you're right, is that the ability to have such visions is rarely what made a person a hero of the Jewish people. Um, and that was really the, the emphasis. The emphasis on, it was on mastery of Jewish law, uh, mastery of Jewish texts. That's what made you a sage. That's what made you a rabbi. Ethical conduct. Mystical experiences are like um, seasoning uh, that you can put on your soup. Uh, they're really wonderful. They make the soup taste much better, but a plate full of seasoning uh, wouldn't be very nice. Well, that, that's a very good distinction. I like that a lot. I'll, I'll remember that. And I'll be a little smarter the next time I ask the question. <laughs> um, uh, let's move on to the traits of God. Uh, yeah. And the first question we like to ask different religious traditions is, is God a person, a personal being with personhood features, as we say in philosophy, like awareness, intent, and, and will. Uh, I know you have a paper, uh, Is God a Person, uh, dealing with commodities and other, other Jewish philosophers, and uh, there you want to have your cake and eat it, it seems. You have the paradoxical argument that God is both fully a person and not at all a person. So <laughs> yes. that seems like a, uh, a, a, a pretty good uh, logical contradiction that you'll have to defend now. Have you ever had Graham Priest on the show? <laughs> no, but I, I know. <laughs> so Graham Priest believes there can be true contradictions. Right? Right, so right. I, 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 don't, I don't generally. Uh, <laughs> that's, not, that's not really my view. Uh, but yes, God, it looks... Even God can't do that, I think. But maybe. Yeah, that's right. I think that too. I think even God can't do that. Indeed, that comes back to this, can God create a stone too heavy for him to lift? Right. God can't make con contradictions true. Um, so how can I have my cake and eat it here? How can God be wholly a person and wholly not a person? Well, it, it goes back to something I said earlier, which is that on, the, on a Kabbalistic conception of, of creation, we have to distinguish between how God is in and of himself and how God appears uh, in this thing that we call reality. Because actually what we call reality um, is... On, on my view, I mean, there are different Kabbalistic ways of cashing this out, but on my view, what God did, because he couldn't actually create a world outside his mind, is he created an illusion. And the illusion was that there exists a world outside of God's mind. Mm. But actually, the world and all of uh, the things in it are in God's mind. We're just characters in a story that God's telling. And the distinction we need to draw is the distinction between God as he appears as a character in his own story and God as he really is uh, beyond the story. Now, those two people are numerically one. There's only one person, just like there's only one Kurt Vonnegut, uh, even though Kurt Vonnegut appears in some of his stories and the things that happen to him in his stories don't necessarily reflect what happened to him in real life. Um, likewise, I think that God is a person in the story called history. We meet him as a person um, and his personality, his personhood is as real, Robert, as you and me. Because, you know, what reality is for you and me is whatever's true in the story that God's telling. And in the story that God's telling, God is a person. But God gives us a glimpse of how he is beyond the story and beyond the story, he's, he's not personal. Um, there are various things that persons can, can do or do do that God outside of the story doesn't do or can't do. One such thing is to have relationships with other persons because actually he's all alone. Okay, um, this is a very deep uh, investigation. Um, I, I could argue that if you have personhood characteristics, then by the definition you are a person. You may have other things, but once you have those kinds of personhood features, then you are a person, even if you have more than that. Well, let's say that I write a story about me, okay? And uh, in the story, I have a horn on my head. 
right? Uh, now I know, and you know, many anti-Semites used to believe that Jews had horns on their heads, but uh, so perhaps, <laughs> perhaps it wasn't the best example. Yeah. But um, just because it's true in the story that Sam Liebens has a horn on his head doesn't mean that it's true that Sam Liebens... But, but that argument assumes that this, the, the person in the story is an illusion. Well, I don't like to think of it like that. I think of it as a story sets up a domain of discourse. We can talk about a story, okay? So let's call that a domain of discourse. And then we can talk about what's true relative to the story and what's true outside of the story. It's true relative to the story that Hamlet was a prince of Denmark. It's not true outside of the story that Hamlet was a prince of Denmark. There was no such prince. Mm. Likewise, it can be true relative to a story that Sam has a horn on his head. Oh, I, I agree with that, but, but the story is not the the reality well so i i think in terms of of um degrees of reality oh. you and i robert we're not as real as god and if if the criticism is that my philosophy doesn't put put ourselves on the same ontological footing as god i actually think theists should just bite that bullet that's part of what theism sure. says sure so hamlet is less real than shakespeare Shakespeare is more real than Hamlet, and God is more real than Shakespeare. Stories within stories, but the ultimate author is God. Yeah, I, I think that's coherent, uh, but I think if, if talking about God is a person and the only um, um, instantiation of that is in God's own story, yeah. I'm a little uncomfortable with the, of, of attributing personhood to God because he put it into his own story. Good, I think, but I think the discomfort comes for the following reasons. We're standing on one level of reality and we're trying to talk about, like goldfish in a bowl, trying to talk about what's outside. And, and I think that the following thing might help. To you and me, Robert, if it's true that we are, so to speak, fictional characters in the story that God, God tells, then actually on a day-to-day um, basis. What's most important to us is what's true in the story. Who cares if it's raining outside of the story? I want to know if it's raining where I am, right? Um, as I say in one of my papers, Baker Street didn't actually have 221 houses in the time when um, Arthur Conan Doyle was writing the, the Sherlock Holmes stories. So should Sherlock Holmes be worried uh, that his house doesn't exist because there's not 221 houses on Baker? No, because in the story it's true, and that's all that should matter to him. Yeah, I, Likewise, and the trouble I'm having is equating the story of Sherlock Holmes or the Bible or yeah. what you do in life with the, the claim of reality yeah. to an independent reality. Like, yeah. let, the, the, we could spend the rest of the <laughs> week could, on could. this, and I would enjoy it, but let's, let, let's move on. In fact, uh, really progressing to deal with the specific attributes that God possesses and, and, and compare the Jewish or the Kabbalah God with the perfect yeah. being theology of, of Christian philosophy, you know, yeah. all omnis, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresent, all benevolent, all free. Um, how do they articulate? Well, look, there are, there are sources in the Hebrew Bible for God's omniscience, various verses in the book of Job talking about nothing being hidden from God. Um, there are various um, um, verses in the Hebrew Bible that speak to omnipotence too, hakol yachol, that God is, God is all able. Um, so, you know, I don't think perfect being theology is, is a peculiarly Christian um, pastime, although I think Anselm gave it, you know, Saint Anselm gave it, um, I think much more rigor as a, as a kind of discipline, perfect being theology as a, as a way of thinking about God. Um, I think the problem that Christianity faces is similar to the problem faced by Islam and, and Judaism, is that our scripture um, describes God in quite personal terms. Merciful, kind, he can be swayed by, by, you know, by our actions. Um, um, sometimes seems to regret things, sometimes seems not even to know certain things. Uh, on the other hand, um, the sorts of uh, reasons that led Anselm and others to relate to God as a completely perfect being, a being outside of space, a being outside of time, because those things limit you, 
a being who can't be causally affected by anything because that would be some limitations. The sort of reasons that led Christian thinkers to those conclusions had already, you know, even before Christians got there on the whole, uh, moved Muslim thinkers and, and then later Jewish thinkers to the same conclusions. Um, so there was this kind of tension between the personal God of scripture, who also appears in rabbinic literature, but the God of the Talmud and the Midrash seems to be a very personal God, mm -hmm. uh, to the God of kind of high medieval theology um, influenced by Aristotle and Greek thinking that has God as a completely non-personal, um, perhaps force or being that transcends perhaps even all description at all. The, How do you the, reconcile them? The concept of grounded being and the characteristic of timelessness, exactly. immutability, impassibility. impassibility. It means you can't be affected by anything. I think you had some some analysis that just taking omnipotence as as, a, as an assumption, then God would seem to be invulnerable. And if God is mm -hmm. invulnerable, how then could he be subjected to the suffering of others or the disappointment or all the characteristics we see when God deals with Israel in the Hebrew Bible. In the Bible. And I think characteristics which are distinctively personal, to be able to be moved by another person is perhaps part of what it means to be a person. Hmm. Hmm. You know, so, so in my paper, I tried to reconcile that, but in answer to your, you know, this tension, but in answer to your question, um, there are different strains of Jewish theology. The earliest strains seem to describe God in thick personal terms. Later strains seem to describe God in all of those kind of more transcendent terms that you, that you brought to the table. And that there. developed during the Middle Ages? And the Middle Ages. By yeah. Islamic philosophy. But, you know, by Islamic philosophy in, in the wake of, of its exposure to Greece. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, post-Holocaust thought in the Jewish world seems to have gone very much back in the direction of a, of a personal God. Um, you know, and, and my desire as a Jewish theologian and philosopher um, is to try and find a path of best fit between all of these conflicting Jewish voices. And that's because of a faith conviction of mine, which is that God speaks to the Jewish people through its evolving canon of literature. So if God is speaking through all of these different strata of, of, of the Jewish intellectual history, is there some way of you know, navigating through these tensions. Right, that's a, that's a, a lifetime ambition. To, to <laughs> yes. That. So we'll keep checking with you every decade or so. Yeah. <laughs> that would be lovely, Robert. <laughs> um, how does God's omniscience work? Um, everybody sort of agrees that God knows everything, but but how, do, how does that happen? What's the mechanism? Obviously, it's pure speculation, but I, I find yeah. it very probative to see how different traditions uh, 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 assess that mechanism. Yeah, um, so, you know, there are certain problems, philosophical problems that emerge with, with uh, omniscience. You know, if God is timeless, does God know what time it is now? Right? Which is something we know, but perhaps God doesn't know if he's timeless. That is not um, You know, if you define God, uh, omniscience as knowing all true propositions, there's a problem because I, I don't necessarily want to get into the logical puzzles here, but as soon as you try to create a set of all of the true propositions, you get into paradoxical territory. Bertrand Russell's paradox. Bertrand Russell's paradox, certain Kant, you know, paradoxes that are due to Kant. Or if you had the set of all true propositions, we could we could talk about it, which would be to add a new proposition, right? A proposition about the set of all terribly paradoxical. So there are puzzles here. I always liked the philosopher John Leslie's uh, analysis of this, where he said. Uh, God can no, have an infinite amount of knowledge by knowing the weight of an infinite line of apples, but not even know that a carrot exists. So that's the difference between knowing an infinite amount of things and knowing everything. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You can know an infinite number of things with that. You could know all the numbers. That would take you a long time. <laughs> You'd know very little else. Yeah, so I. Um, but in answer to your question, in, in, in the Jewish tradition, you get a number of responses. In, in the high Middle Ages, um, you've got um, a God who knows all things in virtue of knowing himself. And it's a very different type of knowledge to your knowledge or mine. It's not, it, he doesn't know discrete propositions. It, it almost sounds kind of mystical to me. Somehow by knowing himself, that's sufficient for knowing all things. Um, you have open theism in the Jewish tradition. 
open theism suggests that God knows everything. How far back does open theism go? Because in Christianity, that that's sort of a recent kind of, uh, of development. It is, and it's anachronistic of me even to use the term, really, because I would use it of Gersonides, who was uh, a thinker in the 14th century in Provence. But it's just that Gersonides says outright that uh, an omniscient being could know all of the facts of the past and all of the facts of the present, but the future hasn't happened yet. So that it, the future isn't there to be known fully, and therefore an omniscient being wouldn't know it. That's open theism. You know, um, although that that terminology hadn't been coined, and you're right, it's kind of a Protestant movement that was much later. Mm -hmm. um, I, I particularly like this notion of, of course, it, of course, I'm going to like this notion because yeah. it goes back to the storytelling notion that, you know, there's a sense in which Conan Doyle is omniscient vis-a-vis -vis the stories of, um, of 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 Sherlock Holmes because he's in a position to know anything he wants to know because he could just stipulate things and make them the case. So it's not necessarily that he knows all things, but he's somehow in a position to know all things. His knowledge makes things the case. There may be certain things he hasn't decided. Here's a radical thought, right? How many blades of grass are there in, you know, on the campus of the University of Haifa? Well, maybe God hasn't decided. <laughs> maybe he's not counted. Uh, but but he's in a position to know just by stipulating. Uh, Let's move on to the actions of God and the question yeah. we have to ask is the world created by God? Did God yeah. create, as we say, ex nihilo from nothing? And I'd like to um, explore the first two verses of, of Genesis and you're going to pardon mm -hmm. my poor Hebrew. Bereshit, uh, which means in the beginning or with a beginning, bere Elohim created God or God created et ha-shamayim which is uh, created the heavens and earth, very famous uh, uh -huh. first verse. Then the second verse, v'ha-aretz uh, ha the earth was, and then these two words, tohu v'vohu, v'va means and, so tohu v'vohu, tohu and vohu, which is translated as unformed and, and void. Uh, uh -huh. So taking those verses as, as our assumptive uh, of what we're working with, assuming we believe that, uh, how, how do you answer the question, did God create from nothing? Because it sounds like it's not from nothing he's creating, or at least the images in the, in the Hebrew Bible, but rather reforming something that was unformed. Very nice question. Uh, and I, I, I relate to this at, at length in, in my book on, on the principles of Judaism. I talk about three principles of Judaism. One is creation, one is revelation, one is redemption. In the first part of the book, I speak about creation. I speak about exactly this question. And... Uh, I think you're right that read in isolation, those two verses seem to apply, imply a quite platonic story of the creation, right? Plato has the demiurge forging um, the universe out of, you know, by imposing order upon the chaotic primordial matter. Okay. And, you know, that's how you could read these verses, right? So God exists eternally, and alongside him is this tohu vavohu, this chaotic matter and then in the beginning of God's creating he starts to impose some sort of order upon it and yeah I think that was a natural reading of, of those verses um Gersonides adopts that reading we've spoke, just spoken about Gersonides as a, as a proto-open theist he, he, he also thought that God created the world from something but that was not um it was it was never the normative view among Jewish thinkers. It was thought to be a possibility and it wouldn't be a disaster if kind of logic, reason and science pushed us in that direction. But the, the favored cosmogony, cosmogony is a theory of creation for, you, for anybody who doesn't know. Um, the favored cosmogony in Jewish intellectual history has always been creatio ex nihilo. Now, what do you do with those verses then? Well, there's a charming midrash where somebody asks, I think they ask Shimon ben Gamliel, they say, your God is not so powerful. He couldn't create from nothing. He needed this tohu and vohu. He needed this water and whatever, all the other things. And Shimon ben Gamliel provides a verse for each of the ingredients that this heretic suggests God required to create the world. 
Shimon ben Gamliel provides a verse from elsewhere in the Bible, such as the book of Psalms, that imply that those things too were created by God. Mm. So according to Shimon ben Gamliel, if you look at the Bible holistically, you'll discover that Tohu, in fact, was another of God's creation, whatever it was. Uh -huh. So too was Vohu. And, and ultimately, uh, the creation was uh, ex nihilo. Does God create continuously? I know in Judaism, there's a theory of continuous creation. Yes. So the, the three basic options were that God created ex nihilo in the beginning of time from nothing. God created by imposing form upon formless matter at the beginning of time. Um, the third one is this kind of Aristotelian view that there was no beginning of time. Time stretches back infinitely far. But God nonetheless exists and is in some sense the creator because he is continuously creating and he's been doing that for infinitely long. Um, you know, in some Jewish thinkers, I, I, I think that Hastai Kreskus was actually uh, sympathetic to that view um, and says that that's actually creatio ex nihilo. It's from nothing. It's just that, you know, because God isn't using any equipment from moment to moment to sustain the universe. It's from nothing. Um, I, I think that most Jews believe, for fear of collapsing into deism, that even if God had an initial action of creation, the creation from nothing at the beginning of time, he is also involved from moment to moment in sustaining the creation in being. And I think that's the consensus Jewish view. Let's deal with some questions with very short answers. So I want okay, to I'll do my best. Questions. I'm really bad at that. <laughs> no, no, some, some good metaphysics at the end. So uh, does God intervene in human affairs? And by that generally mean, does God violate the laws of physics? Yes. <laughs> so he does, he doesn't intervene in human affairs, um, yeah. individual, I mean, nationally, and in doing so, he, he doesn't worry about the laws of physics. I, that's that I think is the consensus view of Orthodox Judaism. I mean, there's a whole stream of Judaism that was in some senses founded upon the denial of that thing, which is Reconstructionist Judaism mm. um, in, in America. So I don't want to speak for all Jews here. You know, for every two Jews, there are three views, as you well know, right? So, but but I, I certainly think that in Orthodox Judaism, the overwhelming consensus is that God can and does intervene in history. Um, and the laws of physics don't, the laws of nature don't hold him back in so doing. Now, there are various ways you could try to explain that. Maimonides thinks, you know, but okay, but, you know, yeah, yeah, so, okay, no, we won't go into that now. There but, are always uh, many ways to explain it. <laughs> just want to get the, the opinion. The many ways yeah. I, I appreciate. Uh, in Judaism, is there any tradition of universalism with respect to salvation or liberation or redemption, whatever we want to call it, in that all individuals in some ultimate sense will be saved or redeemed or liberated or, or brought into uh, uh, God's presence. Yes, the overwhelming consensus of, of Jewish views across the board, um, ever, at least since the Talmud was redacted in around the year 700 uh, of, of, the, of the common era, um, righteous Gentiles have a place in the world to come. No, that's universalist in terms of a, pl a pluralistic. In other words, it's not just Jews. It could be anybody who's the right. Mm -hmm. Noahide laws of the, the Bible, I think, you are exemplary. No, I'm asking a bigger, I mean, I, I want to ask that question too. So that was my next question. We've dealt with that. But I, I want to deal with the universalist concept that everyone in some sense, if they're going to be punished or what, in, in some ultimate way, everyone will be included. God will redeem everyone. And that would obviously include Hitler. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't think that's the consensus view. Um, Has there been any tr trend in Judaism where you have a universalist view? I mean, there is this punishment that the Bible speaks about called karet, and uh, not not to be confused with the the, the orange root vegetable. But <laughs> it, it's it's confusing what karet is. People aren't sure, but some people think it's the annihilation of a soul. So there is a notion in Judaism that some souls just don't have an afterlife at all. Mm. Um, you know, so so I, I don't think it has been. I, I can't think off the top of my head of anybody who. Well, I think there are seriously. three. I think there are three broad categories that you have. You have a punishment, eternal punishment sector of religion. You have an mm -hmm. annihilation, which I think is a small one, but I think it's a very legitimate one as, mm -hmm. as part of it. Annihilation. In other words, people won't be punished forever, but those mm -hmm. who can't be redeemed 
will mm-hmm. be non-existent so they won't feel pain forever uh, mm-hmm. and then the third of course is universalism that at some point in some way after whatever process purgatory hell pain yeah. ultimately all will be redeemed i think those are the three logical positions yeah so J- judaism hasn't traditionally subscribed to a, a, a notion of eternal hell Gehinnom in the jewish tradition is almost universally uh, seen to be a temporary punishment okay. that will allow a soul redeem a soul from from the the damage it may have done on earth and allow it to, to enter so to speak into heaven so that uh, sort of moves towards the universalist vision. You have a temporary punishment, um, which would fit a temporary sinning. Uh, That's right. But not everybody even makes it to, to not, not every sinner makes it to, to this temporary hell. Oh, Some okay. sinners may be so bad that after they've been punished, they'll also be annihilated. Okay, I better be careful. Okay. <laughs> well. okay. okay, let's move on to some questions in metaphysics. Um, and the question we'd like to start with is the nature of ultimate reality and the question we ask is what exists and by that we mean what are the fundamental non-reducible categories of reality and i think from your previous answers i know what you're going to say but from judaism's point of view what are those non-reducible categories you the you, you will find many jewish thinkers who will say look god exists um the the um the elements of the physical world exist because God created them and gave them being, and uh, some non-physical things exist too. So I think the general position is what philosophers would call dualism. Mm. There is mind and matter. Um, somehow everything depends upon the existence of God, but mind and matter both you know, exist and are both real and, and one can't be reduced necessarily to the other. Um, my own view, as you rightly anticipate, and I think it's a view that's universal among Hasidim, at least, the Hasidic section of the Jewish map, is that there is some fundamental sense in which only God exists, because God is the foundation of all being, and to the extent that anything else exists, it exists as thought of in the mind of God. Uh, I I saw the term you used, Hasidic ontology. Yes, Uh, Hasidic idealism. and, And I wanted to ask you the specific definition of that. That is idealism. So Hasidic ontology is is, uh, what we would call idealism. Yeah, I call it Hasidic idealism, the view that that, um, God is the only thing that is as fundamental as he is. Um, Anything else that exists, exists merely uh, as an idea in the mind of God. Uh, But, you know, you and I exist too, and so does our reality, but only as it's dreamt up by God. I think that's a little cheating. If you're an idealism, it's idealism. You can put a nice cover on it. You know me already now, but I'd like to cheat again. That's good. I like that. I like that. (laughs) Um, How about the process of causation? Because many people who believe in in God's idealism move into occasionalism, which is the fact that God is involved intimately in the causation process, even in the physical world. Yeah. I think that's right. I think especially if you adopt an idealism, it's very difficult to stop the collapse into occasionalism. Um, and I don't seek to. Uh, I, think that, I think that what scientists discover are regularities in the way that God thinks about things. Uh, but the actual causal power is, is God's thought. I mean, I'm only making things worse for me because now the problem of evil becomes much worse. I really believe that God can intervene in history, and indeed that everything that happens happens at his kind of causal uh, behest, uh, then the problem of evil is, is you know, really sticky. Good. That's a very good point. Bob brought that up. I mean, all of these points we have to deal with linearly because that's the only way human mm-hmm. beings can deal with things, but they, mm-hmm. they uh, hyperlink to each other, and that mm-hmm. was well, well said. Uh, an- another important question we ask is the relationship between consciousness and your conception of God in each religious tradition, because many religious traditions, particularly Eastern traditions, would have consciousness almost as a precursor, as the most fundamental thing. And if there's a God, God is the process of this consciousness purpose. And indeed, some religious traditions have only consciousness or cosmic consciousness in some sense uh, as the primordial factor. Uh, a God in, in Judaism uh, is clearly, in Kabbalistic traditions, clearly a conscious entity, but is there any sense that consciousness is a um, is an independent abstract object 
that is the foundation of, of the deity? Um, I think that certain trends in Judaism point that way. Um, however, you know, the medieval consensus is that um, even though we're forced to talk about God as if he's conscious, um, he actually transcends all of our uh, vocabulary, all of our concepts, and, and he transcends even consciousness. Um, I think that even though the Hasidic and Kabbalistic tradition would want to resist this because they say that the aim soft, which is the infinite God in and of himself, they want to say like Maimonides, that the aim soft transcends all concepts and categories and properties. I actually think that they will struggle given other things that they say, to um, seal off consciousness from actually being of the essence of God. And, I, and, and that's why I, I am very sympathetic to the Eastern tradition. I think that there's one property that, that, that God can't fail to have, mm. and that's some sort of mentality. Well, what follows from that? Well, it's not so much what follows from that as to what led to that, right? It's because I, I think that um, God, it, ultimately, I'm a philosopher as well as a theologian, as well as a religious Jew, as well as a rabbi. I'm a philosopher. And as a philosopher, God interests me. You probably have a lot of self-contradictions when you argue with yourself. <laughs> right, I do. I, I, no, I love that. Okay. But, you know, as a philosopher, I'm interested in God as a posit, a philosophical posit. Yeah. And po posits pay their, um, their way by explaining stuff. And one of the hardest things to explain um, for a materialist, for a naturalist, for a physicalist, is the emergence of consciousness. Yeah, of right? How can it be that some configuration of, of physical things described in the third person gives rise to a first personal uh, explanation that is a whole one-third of close to the truth of <laughs> well exactly okay. and uh, and it's something I'm, I'm really fascinated by and um one of the roles that god can play explanatorily it is you know is the foundation of all being i think is also the foundation of all consciousness i think what we've learned through the failures of naturalism and physicalism to account for consciousness is that consciousness deserves to be right at the foundation of our explanatory schema rather than somewhere higher up. And, and it's those sorts of things that, so rather than saying, well, what follows from God's being mental, it's what kind of led, <laughs> led me to that, is that you know, this being to the extent that, that he's paying yeah. his way is an explanatory positive. I agree with all that. It still doesn't articulate the relationship between consciousness and God, because I think there's fundamental differences between traditions where consciousness is something that's the product of God in a creative sense, and others believe that it's the foundation of what God is, and in that sense, is more foundational than God. Well, if you know, given what I've said, and I'm now no, I'm no longer speaking for the Hasidic tradition, rather than inspired by it. Okay. If I think of, of the creation as thought up by God. Yes. Then, then God's creative activity is the activity of thinking stuff up. It's intentional. So, kind of right at the very core of our theology, we, you know, we have God as a mind that thinks. Um, and it's not clear to me that thought itself is something that God created. It's something that He does. It's right. It's kind of written in, so to speak, to His DNA. This would make the Jewish um, thinkers of, 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 of yesteryear uncomfortable because they want to think of God as transcending all concepts and categories. But I actually think that some of what they say uh, um, just leads us in this direction. Let's have some fun and go into your uh, one of your favorite metaphysical puzzles, which, uh, which uh, deals with one of the core themes of Closer to Truth, which is the relationship between God and time. And as we say, that you don't have to believe in God at all, and you don't really have to care about time, but the relationship is a very deep probe of, of the nature of reality, whether you believe in God or not, to get that. Now, you have a, uh, a hypothesis that I think you call the promise of a new past, in that God can change the past. Now, I have a lot of questions I want to ask you about it, 
but I'll give you the floor first to defend the proposition that God can change the past. Right, so I think there are hints of this in the Bible. God says, um, I, even I, um, shall erase your sins and your transgressions I will no longer remember. How can God not remember them? Well, Isaiah tells us how, because he will have erased them. They will no longer be, because God can change the past. Um, I can put the question back to you. Why wouldn't you think God could change the past? I think God could change memories of the past. He can erase all of my memories really easy. I erase a lot of my own memories <laughs> now anyway. Um, but he certainly could do that. And God could eliminate all evidence of the past, even beyond human memory or any memory at all. That's not the same thing at all as eliminating the fact that there was a past in some in some hyper-dimensional or some other other sense of, of, of reality. Um, it, it's, it's just hard to see. I can see where God can, won't remember or, or will himself not to remember our past sins. I, I appreciate that, by the way. Sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, but to say that those never existed in some ultimate sense uh, seems to me to be really close to a logical contradiction. Yes, so so that 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 I'm glad I'm I'm glad you put that into the air, the notion of a logical contradiction. Yes, uh, the fear of contradiction is what has stopped theologians classically from thinking that this should be one of God's powers. Michael Dummett um, says explicitly that God's changing the past, actually making the case that something that happened no longer happened, is a contradiction. You can you can spell it out. Uh, um, you know. It was the case that X happened. Then, so let's call that thesis one. Thesis two, God made it the case that X didn't happen. Well, you know, um, two just contradicts one. If God made it the case that X didn't happen, then X didn't happen. But thesis one was that X did happen. <laughs> but if God made it not happen, then it didn't happen and God didn't change anything. There you get the contradiction. And um, to cut a very long story short, the, luckily this paper is open access, uh, The Promise of a New Past, which I co-authored with my, with my good friend Tyron Goldschmidt. Um, and I've, I'd, I'd, I've kind of advanced the, the, the thesis a little bit more and refined it in, in my book on the principles of Judaism. Uh, uh, but to put it in a nutshell, the only reason you think there's a contradiction there is because um, our language is impoverished. And um, we only have a past tense, present tense, and future tense. But if it's true that time itself can undergo changes, then we need a new set of tenses, okay? Um, a hyper-past tense would describe how the past used to be before it was changed. Okay. A hyper-present tense would describe how time is hyper now, before, you know, before God changes it anymore. And a hyperfuture tense describes how time will look once God has changed it. And um, the contradiction actually disappears because I can say the following. It hyper was the case, the X, but it never was the case, the X, because God changed the past. Yes, I, and I, I can absolutely follow that. I think that there's a contradiction, but, yeah. but it's really just kicking it up a level. It's similar to the argument. Uh, people use the design argument, uh, fine-tuning in our universe, but if you have a multi-universe, you don't need that anymore. That's something, but, but then the contradiction is you're just kicking the, the problem up a level. And so yeah. you have hyperpass, you have different streams of time and all yeah. that, but there'll still be there'll still be one of those streams of time. In the when all that bad stuff happened. When, when, when the thing you didn't want to uh, happen, you know, happened in that timeline. You yes. Were in this multiple timeline universe which is the equivalent in time of a multiverse in in yeah. space yeah not the perfect analogy but it, it gives you a feel for it uh there will always be one of those timelines one of those possible worlds one of those real worlds of those timelines in which that thing that you erased actually is still there yeah you're you're absolutely right to raise that problem and the, the way that i try to avoid it is to say the following um the past actually exists, 
Okay, there are many philosophers who agree with me. There's, there's a, a raging, as you all well know, there's a waiting debate about this, a raging debate about this. Does the past actually exist? But I'm on the side of those who say the past actually exists. It's a place you could go to. And all of, uh, I don't know if you have any, Robert, but all of my bad deeds are there in the past still now, okay? And uh, that's a shame. Uh, but I don't think that the hyper past is actually a place. Like the presentists who deny the past is really existing. Yeah. I deny that the hyper past is an actual place. I'm what you might call a hyper presentist. So even though I think the past exists, I think the hyper past isn't a real place where God keeps all of the kind of um, the cutting room floor kind of offsuits. No, they disappear altogether. Um, what what makes it the case that that bad things happened? Like you say bad things happened. Yeah, it's true that bad things happened. What makes it true? All those bad things in the past still happening over there in the past. That's what makes it true that bad things happened. Yeah. What makes it true that bad things hyper happened? Well, the only thing that makes it true, because I'm a hyper-presentist and there is no place called the hyper-past, all that makes it true is that our timeline has this property. And that property is something like having been manipulated by God. Call that property the shadow of the bad things that have been expunged. I would much rather that the world contains such shadows than it actually contained the horrific scenes themselves. And, and I'm very happy about that. I hope that's, that's the case, but shadows are still things. Yeah, I agree. And you can't get rid of it all. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I, I, you know, I, that's a bullet I bite. I just think, um, I, you know, if I don't bite it sufficiently hard in the paper with Tyron, I bite it a bit harder in the book. Okay. Um, um, God can at least make this timeline much better by replacing absolute horrific events with something like shadows. Well, we have to bite the bullet on this timeline for our conversation today. Um, Sam, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I Me would too. look forward to some uh, further engagement with Closer to Truth, uh, perhaps a, 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 on an extended level. Thanks for joining the, the Global Philosophy of Religion Project. Uh, we appreciate uh, your being here. It's been my great pleasure, thank you. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.